1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Focus Hunting Podcast. Before we get started with today's podcast, I want to take a few minutes and talk about our local hunting and fishing stores. Uh, with the holidays right around the corner, I want to remind everyone to shop local. Support uh, your local outdoor shops. These guys have always been there when we needed them, so it's time for us to step up. On my last whitetail trip, actually, I was doing my gear checklist two days before I was set to leave, as usual. I realized I needed some new lighted knocks for my arrows, so I uh, I ran down to see Ken at Hardcore Archery here in Kelowna, grabbed some new knocks, and I was good to go. You know, if those guys weren't around, I, I would have been screwed while... I mean, I guess I could have used unlighted knocks, but, you know, that would have thrown my FOC off a bit and they would have been harder to see. But, uh, you know, look, the point is these guys have always been there when we needed them. So now it's our turn to be there for them. So, you know, these big box stores, they're going to survive. So if you guys are listening to this, write in, give me the name of your local hunting or fishing shop. I'm going to reach out to them. And uh, before every podcast uh, until de- December 25th, I'm going to help promote your local hunting and fishing store. So if you guys are listening to this and you want to help out your store, write me at info at focushunting.ca. Welcome, you guys, to the Focus Hunting Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by one of the co-founders of the Outfitter Coffee Company. If you guys are unfamiliar with Outfitter Coffee, they're a great group of guys who have found a unique way to give back to conservation. By now, you're all aware of Hunters for BC and the great work they do in this province, so... If you guys aren't already members of VCs Interior Chapter of SDI Strongly you go to their website. Check out the great work that they're doing and uh, enjoying today. Also, if you guys go to the Focus Hunting page, we've got some cool new gear coming out, so be sure to go over there and check that out. Uh,
2: things are strange, right? I think we're supposed to be a hotbed for COVID-19. Yeah, um, I know you're in Canada, but here in the United States, you know, of course we we came from what we were called a red state, which is a conservative state, to a blue state recently in our politics, and that's been a big surprise for a lot of people who live here. And you know, just as uh, just as the politics flip uh, on a regular basis here in the state, so does our weather. You know, two days ago, I was down in South Georgia with a t-shirt and shorts on, and now I'm back in North Georgia with a really thick jacket on because it was snowing yesterday
1: yeah quite the change yeah we live in canada so we're already in the cold weather
2: i was going to say you you have a pretty long winter out there right
1: yeah yeah we definitely do yeah. we're not as bad uh, in kelowna here as some parts of the uh country but uh definitely a lot colder than you get down there oh
2: yeah i'm sure
1: on the midst of the election how's everything settled down so far i know up here there was a lot of consternation about the u.s election
2: So for us, during every four years or at least every changing of a president, there's always uh, temporary turmoil, right? Of course, Trump is a little bit more vocal about uh, this year's election, but eventually it'll all come to pass. We'll survive, just like any other time we'll survive. Um, You know, whether uh, half the country believes that uh, we are rightfully moving forward or not, doesn't really matter. In the end, you know, as – I guess, diverse in ideals as as Americans are, we truly are one people in the end. And I think that we'll eventually be able to at least calm down and reunite for the purposes of the media, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. Well, that's good. I know. Here in Canada, we seem to follow the U.S. election, I think, more than we follow our own.
2: So. Well, I mean, it's tabloid material, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the Focus Hunting Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ten Dang. Ten is the co-founder of the Outfitter Coffee Company. Ten, thanks for joining me today. Hey, no problem. Can you give us a bit of an introduction
2: to yourself? Yeah, sure. So, you yeah, um, know, academically, I am uh, I have a legal background. I, uh, I studied law for many years of my life, and um, I never ended up practicing law. Um, I wanted to do something else. Ever since I was a kid, I didn't want to work for anybody, didn't want to work for a firm. Uh, so, I al- had always been an entrepreneur, right? And I've always started businesses here and there, and I was a successful brand development entrepreneur for about 10 years. Um, and, you know, as somebody who grew up fishing and hunting, I, uh, I wanted to do something that could return back to my hobby while running a business at the same time. Uh, as you know, you're having us here on podcast Outfitters Coffee Company. We're a coffee company that gives back to wildlife conservation. And I want to start a company that gave back to wildlife conservation because whether if this is happening in your country or not in Canada, in the United States, it is, right? Is that uh, we're, Our numbers of anglers and hunters are declining every single year. And as those numbers decline, we sell less licenses. Selling less licenses means that there's less funding for our Department of Natural Resources to take care of our wildlife as well as our public lands. So the only way for us to really bring those numbers back up, or at least to try to conserve the numbers that we have now, is to create an outreach company that hits a couple of things. Right, this is that coffee is it's a commodity. Everybody drinks it doesn't matter what political spectrum you're on. Yeah, I get it. Not everybody drinks coffee, but a lot of people do. And we want to be able to provide a product to where our demographic are doing and sharing the same things that we do and share. That means hunting, fishing, and drinking coffee. So we decided to start a coffee company that not only sold good coffee, ethically sourced coffee, organically grown coffee, but at the same time, take a good percentage of our proceeds and we turn that back to wildlife conservation groups that we believe in to help continue to preserve and conserve our traditions. I know that's getting into the company's background, but as far as my background is concerned, I've always been a serial entrepreneur. I've grown up fishing, I've grown up hunting, and I've continued to do that that as an adult. So I want to be able to give these traditions to my kids when they grow up and to my grandkids as well same as yours and everybody else who's buying out his coffee, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, no, absolutely it does. Up here in Canada, we have seen a decline in hunter numbers compared to the past. In the early 80s, we had over double the annual resident licenses sold. Those numbers were on a steady decline until I think the early 2000s, where we started to see an upshift. We started having really positive numbers around 2015, 2016, but over the past couple of years, it sort of dropped back down again. Now with COVID, I think we're going to see a spike again. I know there was an article out earlier in the year reporting that B.C. resident hunt licenses were up, so we'll see. Now in Canada, well in B.C. anyway, the funds collected from licenses and tags goes into the province's general kitty. They are not designated specifically back into the wildlife management in this province. The annual funding for wildlife management is set in accordance to its annual budget. Our wildlife management leans a great deal on nonprofit organizations, such as Hunters for B.C., Now in the U.S., your hunter numbers are a lot higher than ours in Canada as your population is a lot greater. So you have a bit more money to put back into wildlife and land management. However, there are some policies you have developed down there. Two in particular I think we here in Canada should adapt, and that is what you have in the Dingle-Johnson and and Pittman-Robertson's Acts, whereas, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in the Dingle-Johnson Act, you guys charge a 10% exercise tax on all sports fishing goods. And in the Dingle Johnson, you charge 11% exercise tax on all guns, ammo, and archery sales. Uh, That money is put back into each state's wildlife management. So I think that's something we should look at doing here in Canada as well. But moving on to Outfitter Coffee. Now, there's a few of you involved with Outfitter Coffee Company. Uh, I've talked to, or I should say I've communicated with two of them, Nathan Scott and Brian Sheeler.
2: You got those two guys correct. Nathan Scott and Brian Shaler are two of my partners. Right. We're actually probably the largest small business that you'll come across. Uh, we've been around, I guess, for a little bit over a year at this point, and we have six full-time partners and a couple of auxiliary partners. We also have Levi Mitchell, Terrence Cheney, and Barton Rice, in addition to Nathan Scott and Brian Shaler. Um, we also have uh, another partner that he wishes to to not be named that actually goes around the world and sources our beans for us, yeah oh, right so we're, we're we're pretty large for you know again a small size company,
1: yeah wow, that's awesome, man. You mentioned that hunting and fishing has always been intrinsic in your life. would you say you're more of a hunter or more of a fisherman
2: it well, so it kind of flip flops back and forth my uh my grandfather was a fisherman. Uh, my parents and my grandparents—they were Vietnamese, and they immigrated to the United States in 1980s. Before then, they were all—they uh, were all fishermen. That's what they did for a living in Vietnam. By um, maybe a little bit backstory here that isn't quite related, but it'll lead up into it. My grandfather used to live in a village in Vietnam, where they had pooled all their money together for him to build a vessel to escape communist Vietnam. And my grandfather wasn't just a fisherman, he was also a carpenter. He ended up building a pretty large ship where he took his entire village and his family to escape Vietnam in the middle of the night to go over to the Philippines, to land in Cabon, Philippines. That ship and that group of people were actually known as the 88 Cabron because including my grandfather, he saved 87 other people out of communist Vietnam to go to the Philippines. When they came over to the United States, my grandfather, you know, he held odd and end jobs here and there. He actually worked for a cement factory for what I could remember for a couple of years of my younger life. But most of his time was spent fishing. So were my uncles. And uh, when I was younger, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have internet or we didn't have really high access to video games or technology, right? So most of my time was spent going out on the boats with them learning how to fish, you know, crab, and basically to use the ocean to our advantage. You know, my my grandfather came over here poor, but we were always well fed because not only did he build his own skiff when he came to the United States, but he was always out fishing and shipping. and uh, you know the freezers in the fridge was always full. So I I grew up learning how to do that. Now, very few of the people in my family actually hunted. My uncle did uh and he became an avid hunter where his shed was just filled with racks after racks and i picked up hunting from him and uh being here in the state of georgia we have some of the best public lands to hunt on you know there are several states here in the united states where you really have to find private land to hunt but in my state where i live in georgia we have a lot of free public lands where we just purchase a license and we can go into any of these public lands when they're available to hunt and take deer or any other type of game uh, that we'd like for, well, practically free, right? So uh, I got into hunting a lot. I moved away from the coast because originally I was born and raised coast Georgia, and then I moved to North Georgia, to Atlanta, the state's capital, and we have a lot of mountains out here, but at the same time, we have a lot of hunting land. And I had stopped fishing for quite some time, but uh, for some reason, I I decided to take up fishing. But these days, it's primarily uh, freshwater fishing in the lake. And quite frankly, do I hunt or do I fish more? That's a little tough to say, right? Once it gets too cold, I put the boat up, but at the same time, once it gets too hot, I put the rifle up. But for the most part, I do both year-round.
1: Right, right. Uh, uh, Deer hunter, I presume? Whitetail?
2: Uh, so I, deer, hogs, and coyotes.
1: Deer, hogs, and coyotes. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I've never been hog hunting, but I've always wanted to do it. But we get elk hunting out here, so I guess it's an even trade-off.
2: Which, by the way, you know, I wish I wish we would have elk hunting in Georgia. I know that for the most part, farmers in the northern part of the state don't want them here. All of our surrounding states are now starting to build a very strong elk population. You know, in in the west of the United States, as you may know, in Colorado and California, in those areas we have a lot of elk and elk hunting out there. Here in the East Coast, we have elk tags that are available in the state of Tennessee and the state of Kentucky, but they're very low in numbers. Um, however, the states that are also surrounding us, which is Tennessee and North Carolina, are starting to build up their population. Hopefully. We'll start to see a stronger population within the next decade or two to where we can have relatively open elk season for all of the states around us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh have you ever been elk hunting?
2: Unfortunately not.
1: No, yeah, it's uh it's pretty neat. Up in B C here we have pretty much uh all species, I think. Uh well not all, but a lot of the species you can find in North America we have in our province, so we're pretty fortunate. Outfitter oh, coffee. You kinda touched on on when and how it started uh why the name Outfitter coffee
2: well you know outfitters are known to outfit hunters and anglers to prepare for their trip right
1: yes they are the outfitters um, are a big part of uh, of the hunting community i believe
2: oh absolutely and and part of that preparation is quite frankly a good breakfast and good coffee yeah not all of us would drink coffee But many of us do. Uh, I I don't know how early you guys up there start your hunt or you personally start your hunt. But this year, I've regularly woke up at 2 a.m., 1 a.m., 3 a.m. to go hunt, right? So having a great cup of coffee is is something that's really important because it's – sure, you can buy crappy coffee and chug it down all you want. But having a cup of coffee that is just right, not too pretentious but at the same time gives back to something that you love doing, I think is valuable. You know, for all of my partners and myself in this business, we didn't start this coffee company to become some conglomerate brand where we were maximizing profit margins for the sake of the shareholders of the company. We want to make sure that we kept all of the superfluous costs down and maximize our net income so that we can take the most amount of money and put that back to the different foundations that we donate to, right? And that's where it really matters. You know, I was just talking about how I hope that we'll have a great elk population in the East Coast to hunt 10 and 20 years from now, but that's all really dependent on having those public lands available to hunt, right? So, you know, you had mentioned a couple of facts uh, that gives – sporting good revenue back to wildlife management in the United States. But the reality of business and government is this, right? Is, Is that we don't know how that money is being allocated, how it's being controlled. We know that there aren't enough rangers to cover enough square footage of wildlife lands anywhere in the United States. Poachers can go in and destroy our wildlife population. Uh, I know in California and Texas and those uh, southwestern states also have problems with cartels coming in, destroying wildlife lands, because they're using uh, herbicide, insecticide uh, to grow marijuana, for example. Right. So we know that our wildlife lands are not being protected well enough because we don't have enough funds. Sure. Look, the, the sporting goods industry is a huge industry in the United States. And if a percentage of debt revenue is actually going towards wildlife conservation, you know, we should really be doing a better job. And not that our guys on the ground aren't doing a great job. They're just stretched so thin that they don't have the resources to do that. So guess who's left doing that? It's the, it's the private companies, right? The nonprofit organizations who are boots on the ground, who are going to the rivers, going to the woods, monitoring quality of life, quality of water, and whatever else that they're taking care of. And those guys also need funding, but those guys don't always get funding from our government. So who's left to fund it? It's a private industry. So that's, that's why we started the company because we want to not just, we know us alone, we can't take care of everything. We can't take care of the entire industry, the entire cause. We want to Spark that initial interest in saying, all right. Well, if we can do something altruistic, we know that other people can come on board and do the same thing and support these private nonprofit organizations to help them accomplish what they're trying to do, so that our land and our waters are protected.
1: No, that's great. I know. I know the nonprofit organizations. They do so much. Up here and, and obviously down there too, but they just don't get enough credit. The amount of time those people put in—it's all volunteer work for the most part. But uh, you know, it's just amazing what they do. Yeah. The conservation fund now—how does that work? Can you kind of navigate me through that? How do the funds from coffee get to the nonprofit organizations?
2: So there are two ways that we do this. Uh, the first way is we have a wildlife fund, meaning that we take nonprofit organizations. Uh, we take we have about approximately eight of them right now, and depending on how our business goes within the next few years, we'll determine how many we add each year and We allocate a certain amount of net income to donate to those organizations. most of those organizations are primarily localized organizations to where my partners and I are located. So primarily in the southeast, in river, lake keeping, as well as coastal keepings and public hunting lands. You know, public hunting lands, for the most part, is managed by the federal government. But as far as our waters are concerned, most of that is handled by nonprofit organizations. So that's one way. The other way is that we partner up with, for lack of a better word, influencers or celebrities who have foundations that they are very um, attached to so we just partnered up with a professional bass fisherman over the last couple of months and we're actually about to go through a rebranding of our line and our brand to where one of our coffee lines is branded with his namesake and his trademarks and his logos and we take a pretty significant percent of those sales and give it all to his foundation, right? So that one's very specific. So we're using the likeness of this individual as well as his brand and his influence power to sell his specific line of coffee offered by us to get that a pretty large percentage actually to his nonprofit organization. And his nonprofit organization takes kids in at-risk and urban areas who have very little access to fishing and gives them the ability to actually go out and do that. So uh, those are the two ways that we pursue giving back and Focus on wildlife conservation today, right? So we have a goal of what we want to do tomorrow, next year, and so forth. But today, that's where we are.
1: Oh, wow, that's great! Yeah, I think uh, I think that's amazing. I like I like that idea of uh, of helping those those troubled youth. I think that's something up here in Canada that that we should adapt as well. I don't uh, I don't know of any organizations that are doing that, but that's a great idea. Uh,
2: yeah, you know, absolutely, because look if it's one thing that cures a lot of ailments, it's really being outside, right? Oh, there's, yeah. there's nothing quite the same. You can absolutely hate fishing, but the first time you catch that that monster, that four or five pound bass, even, even a little one, even a little bluegill, you know, it, that, that really brings and sparks a certain amount of joy in practically everybody. Uh, so we know how much... Yeah, absolutely. So we we know the effect of that. And that's where we really want to get that. It's not just about preserving our lands and waters. It's also about preserving the conditions, right? Yeah. Because if we don't do that, it's going to die.
1: Yeah, man, I agree with you 100%. I mean, who doesn't like to fish? We grew up on the coast of BC, so... Fishing was just second nature to us. It was something we definitely took for granted. I don't remember the very first fish I ever caught, but I bet if you were to ask one of my parents, they would definitely remember. And it's the same with my children. Uh, We have three young children. They were all involved in the outdoors from the time they were born. I remember having my daughter in my backpack uh, when she was four weeks old out in the bush. And, you know, all three of them have been fishing and caught fish before they were four years old. So it's that kind of kinship to nature uh that's something my wife and I hold dear to us and value with her late dad being an outdoorsman as well the connection to the wild is a legacy we definitely want to live on so but uh, anyway you guys mentioned you're hands on with the coffee selection can you kind of walk me through that how does that how does that work uh you know do you travel around the world testing different coffees or, or what does that kind of entail the, the process of coffee selection
2: so so let's not say you guys because I'll be very honest with you Captain, <laughs> okay. is, is that I'm not a coffee snob, you know. For the most part, I I can drink practically any coffee, okay? Uh, I can't sit here and say that our coffee is the best or the worst or better or not as good. I just know that our coffee is good. Our customers love our coffee. My partner goes around the world, and he sources directly from bean farm owners, coffee farm owners. Okay he doesn't go through the middlemen he doesn't go through brokers. he goes straight to the farm. he ensures that they're being ethically grown. not only that but their employees are being ethically treated as well yeah
1: right? when you say, when you say ethically grown what what do you mean by that
2: well that that's kind of one the same is that uh, ethically grown means that the employees are ethically treated. right so we we know that there are a lot of farms and countries all around the world where the farm owners will provide very little pay and very little accommodation for the employees who are actually picking the beans. You know, the process of picking the bean uh, takes quite some time. So when the beans are ready to harvest, the employees will come onto the land. They'll live there, they'll harvest it, and then they'll leave the land once that's done. Most places don't offer these employees, these, these pickers, a humane place to live, eat, and spend time when they're on the farm right, is that they'll give them not even the bare minimum, they'll give them whatever skirts the farmers and the the owners' uh, pockets by, and the employees will will suffer from it. But what what other choice do they have, right? If that's the only thing that's available to them to, to earn an income, they'll do it. So we do ensure that our farms treat their employees ethically, meaning that they give them hot water, running water, one place to stay, cool place to stay, food to eat, whatever else it is, then make sure that they have the quality of living that exceeds the standard of the industry. Right. There also, uh, we also make sure that our beans are organically grown. Now, you know, I'll be the first to tell you that the word organic and natural and all that stuff is quite buzzwordy in the Western world. Right in our world, that that word means. I guess it has this posh meaning to it, but the reality of it is that, that things can be grown organically without having a certification, especially in countries where uh, governments don't have regulatory bodies to place that certification on the farms. But we make sure that these beans are grown with either no insecticide or herbicide or organically uh, organic. Insecticide or herbicide. So, our beans are organically grown by organically, quote unquote, um, and they're ethically sourced. So, once we get the beans, we bring them back to stateside. And by the way, our beans come from both Southeast Asia and South America. We bring them back stateside. My partner uh, will roast them, um, and that's where we sell them from. Right. Cool. That was the most uninteresting story. <laughs> Sorry, man. No you know, beans are beans, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, I'm kind of the same way. Where, you know, to me, I mean, you know, coffee's coffee. I mean, uh, you guys have uh, four flavors of coffee. Uh, you know, I've tried them all, and you know, they're all great. I mean, you you've got uh, you've got the white-tailed deer medium roast, the uh, the blue marlin dark roast, um, the grizzly high octane dark roast. Um, there's another one, the Trash Bandit Donut Shop. I, you know, that Trash Bandit Donut Shop, I actually never even got to try. My wife, she drank it on me before I even got to it. So,
2: Well, that's good. So we we actually will have a total of eight different roasts by the year's end.
1: Oh, is that right? Okay.
2: Uh, right. And, uh, you know, we're doing a little bit of restructuring on the different uh, flavors and profiles that we have, but we're going to introduce uh, flavored coffee as well before the year's end.
1: Oh great! Yeah, well, I'll look out for this. I noticed uh, that Trash Bandit Donut Shop. It it must be a fan favorite because it's uh, completely sold out.
2: It's so it's a tough time, right? Is is that we're we're in the process of rebranding? So as a small new business, you know, we kind of have to make the decision of between balancing old inventory and getting ready to usher in new inventory. Right. Right. Uh, Trash Bandit is popular, and so is Whitetail. But, you know, I'll actually send you a sample of what a new branding will look like after we get off the podcast here. But uh, it, it's it's night and day, Kevin. Um, and right. we're really excited to uh, do what we're about to do. Uh, we're, we've lo- we're about to launch a partnership and line with Mossy Oak, if you're familiar with Mossy Oak. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the gentleman I was telling you about earlier with his foundation for at-risk kids, his name is Mike Iaconelli. Uh, with the Ike brand. So we're launching a couple of really large brands and rebranding our current line and just doing a whole new relaunch to really focus on what it is that we want to do. And that's to create a brand that really focuses and appeals to not just hunters and anglers of today, but also future hunters and anglers. Um, And if you don't mind, let, let me get into a little tangent here. Look, I don't know how it is in Canada, but here in the United States, most of us in hunting and fishing, we're typically what most people consider politically conservative, right? Yeah. But the reality of it is, is that as our kids grow older and as our grandkids are born and grow older, they become more liberal as we become more progressive. If we don't make that connection between what we do today to them, it's going to be very tough to continue our traditions. Because look, here in the United States, somebody who's liberal may never know or have access to a person who is either willing or that they're comfortable enough to go talk to to teach them how to hunt, right? Yep. So these are things that we really want to bridge. We want to bridge these gaps to where, okay, well, you know, we can keep this low profile, not too snobby of a brand look but we really can't get anywhere with that we know that first we have to be a coffee and a brand company before we can really make that outreach happen especially to the other side right so look outdoorsmanship transcends or should transcend political spectrums and that's what we really want to do
1: well yes you're right um In my community of hunters and fishermen, the greater percentage of them do share conservative values. I've never heard anyone or um, anyone I know anyway inside my hunting community talk about bridging the gap like that. Uh, But it's a valid point and a discussion, I think, that should be discussed because, like you said, not all hunters and fishermen are conservative, and in true stewardship, we should all be striving for the same common goals Um, because, to the best of my knowledge, wildlife doesn't hold a political stance. Although I'm sure there are some that uh, that might argue that.
2: Well, if you're familiar with our Second Amendment here in the United States, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, like arms, right.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have the. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, so, okay, we all have the, the the basics of it.
2: Sure. Well, look in in the hunting industry and the firearms industry, it's it's almost an all or nothing, meaning that there can be no gift, there can be no connection between us and the other side. But if we continue to go that path in, in sportsmanship, because, look, hunting draws a crowd who are typically very pro-Second Amendment here in the U.S., That makes it very difficult for us to bridge that, that divide between us and a more liberal and progressive group of people. But if we continue that tradition, we're going to lose everything that we fought so hard for. Look, there used to be a piece of land that I hunted here in North Georgia called the Altona WMA. Once upon a time, it was abundant and full of deer. And I had not hunted a thing in over a decade. I went back to that piece of land last year, and there were nothing but homes built on it. All of our public land in that area have either been decimated, or there have been so many developments in the area where it's pushed deer so far away from where hunters can access that that land is no longer viable to hunt on a regular basis. Right. So these are these are things that we do care about, right? These are the things that not only us as conservative people should care about. It should be something that progressive care about as well, because look, as much as they love deer and we love deer too, whether you know it's on our grill or them being alive and visiting our yards, the reality of it is is that look, you know, we we have to manage our game. I I Kevin I literally hit an eight point buck. With my car about a week ago, right? And I, it didn't, it didn't die. Um, it fortunately or unfortunately managed to get up and run away. And then I went out the next morning to see if I could find it. There was another deer that was hit about 500 feet away from where I hit that deer. Our population of deer has become so thick; they're overrunning our suburbs in getting people into accidents not only are deer doing that but we're having hogs and coyotes destroying lands as well right so we can manage the population and still be kind to the population to where we can find balance to have our hunters happy at the same time have our progressive group understand where us hunters where our perspectives are and have them participate as well because There's a reason why we hunt. There's a reason why we manage populations. It's it's there for a reason. Um, So, yeah, that's that's what we hope to do in the next few years is to go beyond just being a coffee company and go beyond just donating to a foundation, but to really be active involved in these type of efforts to bridge those divides between the two spectrums.
1: Yeah, well, that's great, man. So, one question here, not... uh... Take away from the the life of the deer or anything, but when you said eight, you said eight point deer.
2: You mean the one I hit?
1: Yeah, you hit it. You hit an eight point. Yes. Now is yes, that an eight point. is that eight points total or eight one side? I know you guys you guys measure deer a little differently than we do up here. We measure we, we measure the the one horn that has the most points on it. So when you say eight point deer, I'm thinking that deer must have been a giant.
2: No, our eight pointers doesn't matter how much on any side it's the total
1: total points gotcha. gotcha
2: right but again we also measure deer in a rather strange way depending on which lands you hunt well right um so you know for example one of the fours that hunt here in georgia we have a quality management hunt uh, and a quality buck in our case would be four points on one side with those points being a minimum of one inch so a deer can have four points on one side and one point on the other, and that's considered a quality deer, whereas we could look at a 275-pound buck that's got three points on each side, which is six-point total for us. You can't shoot it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's how we, so we, we're the same up here, whereas, you know, like for a mule deer, for instance, we have to, we have a four-point season, whereas it has to have four points on one side, it could have four points on one side and, and one on the other, and it could be you know, a small little deer, uh, or it could be, you know, a giant three by three, and we couldn't. It's not illegally allowed to be harvested.
2: well, and, and let me clarify on that too, Kevin. Is is that you know, I I say that and I poke fun at that, but the reality of it is, is that our wildlife technologists and our wildlife biologists, they've done an excellent job on quality deer management here in Georgia, at least. Uh, Just a decade ago, I I would hunt the mountains in Georgia, and our bucks would be the size of a collie dog. Today, this season, I was taking a look at the Facebook page, and these guys are pulling 14-pointers out of the mountains now, right? So whatever it is that they're doing as silly as I may think it is, they're doing an excellent job.
1: Yeah, yeah, you guys. I talked to uh, Michael Lee um, with Backwoods Life, um recently and and we touched on that you guys's land management stuff down in georgia and and yeah you guys definitely do uh i feel a, a better job of of uh deer management uh than we do up here but you know to our defense we do have a have a lot of species up here whereas you know maybe deer aren't looked at as uh as high quality as you know an elk or or a moose or a bighorn sheep or right. or, the, or the other animals.
2: Yeah, that's that's understandable. I know a lot of us Georgia guys will try to either head out west or get a lottery from Kentucky or Tennessee. Yeah. So I understand that.
1: Yeah. How about yourself? Do you you got any any dream hunts that that you'd like to partake in in the future?
2: You know, so not necessarily. I uh, I don't really consider myself a uh, well. I'm not a trophy hunter. Uh, I more enjoy the time that I get out in the woods or on the water when I actually do getting either to kill or to catch. Um I do have one dream hunt, so let me correct myself. I would love to go out in Maryland to hunt for some sitka deer. Uh Sika deer. And um uh, my uh my best friend lives up in that area but because of COVID nineteen, unfortunately that trip for this year is going to be postponed until next year. Uh, that season, I believe, is at the end of December and early January. So I'll miss that opportunity this year. Yeah, I will uh, eventually head out west to hunt elk. But uh be honest with you, Kevin, when I come out here and um, I hunt whitetail, I can't imagine that any other hunt would be any more or any less exciting. I love eating whitetail deer. Uh, I love supporting uh, my local public lands and i enjoy the camaraderie of the hunters that i have come to know and continue to come to know here in the state uh, so yeah i i get a, a lot of guys like to travel and hunt but for myself you know i just enjoy being there
1: yeah no i know what you mean man uh for me there are certain hunts you know those father son or, or grandfather son uh you know the three generation hunts are very special uh, typically, I look for quantity over quality uh except when it comes to mule deer with muleys, i 'll always sacrifice a a muley tag in hopes for uh for that two hundred inch buck
2: and look, I get it you know I actually see the largest buck on my land so i I own four acres where I live, and my neighbors also owns four acres, and we have just these massive massive boots walking onto my land throughout the entire year, but I won't shoot them. Uh, we, live, we live really close to the suburbs, and that really scares the crap out of people. And yeah. you know, I know that it's my right to be able to hunt my land if I want it to. But quite frankly, because I have so much public land available to me in Georgia, I'd just rather not. I'd rather keep the peace with my neighbors. I'm not saying that any other hunters need to do that. That's just my preference.
1: Yeah, well, I mean that's uh, there is a lot of hunters I think that lack decorum, um, so it's 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 refreshing to talk to talk to those who who do have it. So
2: so what about yourself? Uh, do you do you do any fishing? I, I know you hunt. Do you do any fishing at
1: all? Um, you know I don't do as much fishing as I used to. Uh, like I said, I grew up on the coast, so uh, my life okay. from about four years old till I was in my you know early twenties was the majority of it was was actually spent fishing and. You know, we grew up on the West Coast, the Pacific Ocean, and I actually commercial fished for a number of years. So, I had my nice. I had my lifelong uh, fill of of fishing out there. You know, we caught 70 pound spring salmon. You know, 30 pound uh, 30 pound steelhead, and you know, 300 pound halibut and stuff like that. And we did a lot of river fishing, and and we didn't do as much lake fishing uh, down here. I do a lot of lake fishing with my kids. I don't get as much enjoyment out of it as they do, but, you know, my enjoyment comes from just, just the look on their face when they catch a fish. It's uh, it's pretty amazing.
2: Well, so, here, it, it, uh, I'll give you a story. I took my son out last year. We have uh, a day, maybe two or three, in each one of our public lands where we are allowed to bring our kids out for a youth hunt. So it's actually before rifle season starts, the kids and disabled uh People and seniors can go out and they can have their fair game. I took my son out for his first hunt last year. I parked my truck on top of a Yellow Jackets nest. So, uh, do you guys have Yellow Jackets in Canada?
1: Yes, we do, yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sorry for my ignorance there, but we open the door and we start to dress up get our rifles out, and all of a sudden we start getting hit by yellow jackets. So we got hit by them so hard that we couldn't re-enter the truck. We actually had to run several hundred yards away just to clear those uh, those yellow jackets. So my son, at this point, he might have had a dozen things on him. Oh, no. I run back to the truck. <laughs> right. And he's allergic to the outside, okay? So I, I run back to the truck, manage to not get any yellow jackets in the truck. I drive back. Grab him, and I look at him. I said, hey, we we kind of had this nervous laughter. Together. I looked at him and said, hey, we might as well finish the hunt, right? He said, yeah, Dad, let's go ahead and finish the hunt. Oh, what a trooper. So go to a different spot. That poor trooper walked through stinging nettles. How old is he? Uh, he's, he's 15 this year. He was 14 last year. Right. So by the end of that hunting trip, we couldn't go straight home. We actually had to go to the ranger's office for some Benadryl because he was swollen between the yellow jackets and the stinging nettles, He's thrown in his trooper towel and I can understand.
1: Yeah. De- oh, definitely. <laughs> I would have along long before he did,
2: but he held out very well. So I'm, you know, I'm proud of him. my daughter also hunts with me. She's uh she's been hog hunting with me de- this year. We're actually going to take her out. She's 13. We're going to take her out and let her get her first deer. Yeah that's cool yeah, man so i yeah, gotta cool. love it when kids love it
1: yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely how's uh how old your daughter she's 13 13 how old how what's the legal age to hunt down in down in georgia
2: doesn't matter oh, so really? uh, as long as they're with an adult uh before they of the age that requires a license then they hunt. um supervise of course you know my daughter She's, uh, she's really the outdoors person out of my kids. Um, she got her captain's license at 12. So she, mm-hmm. she can, she can boat me around. She can boat herself around. Uh, and she does a really good job. She's a qualified captain. Uh, she knows the lake very well. She knows how to fish it very well. Um, and you know, she started hog hunting, uh, this year and she'll start deer hunting this year. So, yeah, uh, definitely a trooper too so that's to i'm glad to be able to pass that on to my kids and that they're receptive to it of course my son's on the
1: hiatus right now wow well uh give him a high five for me that's awesome yeah you know the ability to share these experiences marvel and everything the outdoors has to offer is a real blessing um i'm glad to hear that you get the opportunity to share them uh with with your kids uh that's awesome
2: right
1: well you know uh I told you I wouldn't hold you up for too long today. So, again, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and telling all us Canadians about Outfitter Coffee. It's uh, It's been a real treat having you on here today. And uh, we definitely look forward to the new line coming out. I know I'll be uh, checking your website frequently to to see when I can purchase some new products. Devin,
2: I appreciate you having me. I apologize my other partners couldn't be here. They're actually all over uh, the different states in the southeast right now. And with COVID, it's a little bit hard to logistically bring those all together. But, um, by the way, uh, before we get off the podcast here, how are you all doing in Canada with the pandemic?
1: Yeah, we're doing good up here. Uh, like you guys are struggling with the second wave right now, but I think for the most part, people are abiding by the restrictions set out by our healthcare workers, so it's good. But, you know, some are a bit pugnacious uh, when new restrictions come out, but, uh I think it's something we'll all get through together. And the next time we talk, uh, hopefully this is all behind us. I hope so, too. Where can we find you?
2: Well, you can find us at OutfittersCoffeeCo.com. At the end of the year, it'll be OutfittersCoffee.com. We're starting to spread across retailers uh, in the United States, and hopefully we'll be able to cross borders in 2021. Uh, So you'll be able to find us online. If not, uh, request your local gun shop or your local tackle shop, pro shop, to carry our coffee.
1: Yeah, definitely. Will do. Okay. Thanks, buddy. I uh, Again, I really appreciate your time, and uh, and we'll talk soon.
2: All right. Thanks, Kevin.
1: Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, bye-bye.